0: Welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the rising wave of successful unionization efforts and the corporate tactics being leveled against them, including the propaganda that surrounds the very culture of labor. Clips today are from The Real News, ABC News, Democracy Now!, Some More News, and On the Media, with an additional members only clip also from On the Media.
1: For 45, in fact, I should say 50 years, capital has declared, they have always been in conflict with labor, but for the past 45 to 50 years, there has been a class war against working people in the United States. Conservatism was always eager to pursue that class war, but then in the 70s, there emerged something known as neoliberalism, which in one sense is a classic form, a classic form of You know, reduce wages, break up unions, uh, lower taxes, empower business, etc. But we should understand that the word actually signified something very significant in the 70s. It meant a new form of liberalism. That is, the neoliberals that included Jimmy Carter and others were determined to take the Democratic Party and turn it away from the Roosevelt tradition. And when they declared war on capital by way of the Trilateral Commission of Corporate and Political Leaders, by way of the famous Lewis Powell Memorandum to the Chamber of Commerce, and people can read those, it's available online. The fact is that as much as it seemed a political move, it actually was the political vanguard of the class war on labor. And it was powerful in the 70s. They used to say, don't know if it's true or not, that in the 70s, the fastest growing enterprise was union busting law firms. And it came to a head in 1978 when Doug mm-hmm. Frazier left the Dunlop Commission and wrote an l- open letter, to, I believe it was open, to Jimmy Carter saying, I cannot serve on a labor management commission when they have declared class war on us. Well, the fact is the Democrats turned their back on working people, on the labor movement and decidedly on the FDR tradition. And the class war extended not only from the workplace, it extended out into a war on the rights of women, the rights of people of color. And we have seen for these decades. And I want to make it very clear, Max, you know, you came out to Wisconsin to cover this, to to look back on the story for decades. We've. Public employees, well, specifically professors and, and academics in Wisconsin, pursued collective bargaining rights. They This was the first state to grant collective bargaining rights to public employees back in 1959. And in 2010, when Scott Walker and the Republicans took control of the legislature and the governor's mansion, they immediately pursued what? The disfranchisement, I'll call it that, the disempowering. They stripped public employees of their collective bargaining rights. What's going on now, and I'll just sum it up now. What's going on now is we've seen workers go out on strike. We've seen them walk out of jobs. We've seen, seen, and those workers include everyone from teachers to Kellogg's cornflakes makers, basically. And we see it down in Alabama now. And what we've seen in the Amazon strike is this breakthrough moment. Starbucks workers are doing it. Everyone Who has a job recognizes, even if they're not old enough to know how long this has been going on, that they are literally the targets of class war, and the billionaires, as Bernie would say, are becoming soon enough trillionaires.
2: I think I think about where we are, and I'm just thinking also about Chris, and I think about think about Chris Small's getting fired in 2020, and Amazon having 150 percent attrition rate. There hasn't. There hasn't been a desire to fix anything where it is. It's all been about if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And the most common phrase that workers heard for decades was, um, you know, get a job somewhere. If you don't like it here, get a job somewhere else. You know, uh, go, find, go find another one. It's your fault if you don't like it. Um, and what Chris said and what needs to be said is, no, you're not going to chase me away. I'm going to make it better right here. I'm going to I'm going to stick it to you and I'm going to and I'm going to stick with it as long as it takes to do that. And really, I mean, that's that's the moment that we're in here. Are we going to stay and fight or are we just going to continue to let them demoralize us? I always talk about the four D's of union busting. There's divide. Uh, they find every single way to divide us. And and more recently, it has been uh, along identifying with a political party, too. Um, they find uh, ways to delay, so they'll delay any improvements, any resolution. Um, that makes people give up, and um, they they find uh, ways to demoralize us and bring us to that de- uh, demoralization. I'm sorry. The the third is distract. So they'll distract with all kinds of things that get us, you know, moving in a different direction for, for flight attendants. It's almost a joke. Every single time we go into contract negotiations, the company says, oh, we're going to do a new uniform. <laughs> and, but I mean, there's a lot of ways to distract, right? Um, but ultimately moving to the place, the the, the union busters, holy grail is demoralization. Um, because when you get to that place, you, you're under a rock. There's not, you're not even trying anymore. There's not even, there's not even anger. There's not even any emotion that allows you to propel yourself forward. So right now we're fighting through all of that. I mean, when we talk about uh, uh, being free, that has to include economic freedom. And in this country, we have not been willing to say that. We haven't been willing to say that for a very long time, um, if fully ever. Uh, because even the New Deal, of course, left certain people out. So it still was buying into those four D's of union busting. Um, but we really have an opportunity right now to have people connect together. I mean, I'm down on the picket line in Alabama, and I can't tell you the number of times that I have to tell stop somebody with a snarky comment about, oh, those coal miners just have to get over it and get on with it. Like, we're not going to use coal anymore they are mining metallurgical coal that is essential to making steel. Guess what? It's going over to China. They're turning it into steel. It's coming back as windmills, as a, a different uh, source of energy. And But beyond that, it's never the workers' fault. Never, ever. Who were the first environmentalists? It was the United Mine Workers of America, when they were fighting the coal companies to make sure that they weren't poisoning the the towns that they were living in and poisoning the water of their children, they were fighting back on those issues. They were fighting for um, those safety provisions in the in the workplace. And so, I think it's really important that any time that we're looking at another worker and thinking that we're in competition with them, that we have to check ourselves and understand that's the union buster at work. We got to come together. Women, women have been. Uh, Well, I think about the, uh, you know, the textile workers in New York, women who were fighting because they had lost their husband, they had lost the breadwinner, they had to still provide for their children, were willing to take jobs at a lower rate than men because they had to work. They had to, out of desperation, they had to try to provide for their families. And so they were exploited in that way. But then also the unions that existed at the time hated the women for undercutting the wages of the men. But it's really the boss who's setting up the system. So that's what we have to understand is all of these, all of these things have been set up for us to fail. We're not against, cab drivers are not against Uber drivers. They're against the system that Uber created to undercut the the cab driver's work, right? And to undercut all of us and to try to create an Uberization of our entire economy so that, you know, if we need a nurse, maybe we'll just call for them on an app and they're not really an uh, employee of anyone, so they can't have any employment rights. I mean, that's where we're getting to if we don't understand that all of these tactics across the board are the same. And we have to join together as workers, have each other's backs, be in solidarity. And so, you know, being down there, going to Alabama for me is, you know, it's it's spiritual. The mine workers were the ones who led the fight for the eight-hour day. And here we are fighting for it once again. There is not ask any worker out there. Do you work an eight-hour day? It's gone. You're either enforced overtime or the company is not scheduling you enough to meet your benefits, right? Either way, they're undercutting that. The eight-hour day is gone. We're fighting for the same things that we fought for before. Sick leave, vacation, Rights on the job, the right to collectively bargain. This warrior met never should have let this strike happen. They're not even meeting at the table because they understand that they have the state of Alabama on their side and they can order the Alabama troopers to usher the scabs into the mine in order to get by the strikers and even maybe hit them on the way. So we're in the same fight that we were in a hundred years ago. That's what we have to understand. This can no longer be about labor built the weekend labor built our day, labor got us sick leave, all these things. True. But if we don't understand that it's always a struggle, we lose our muscle. And that's what has happened. We've gone to a place where unions are the HR solution for management, as opposed to with relationships behind closed doors, as opposed to understanding our fundamental purpose which is to join working people together in the workplace, take capital on where it is. If we think that we can form another political party and solve this, we don't understand how this works. Because if workers form unions and make these demands on the boss, at some point, the boss is going to break and want everyone else to have to provide the same benefits. That's how we move forward. And we need to move forward and, and finalize what Walter Ruther tried to get done which was a pension and health care for every single worker in this country. No matter who you are, that promise that coming for a full day's work um, and, and decent work for, uh, for, your, for your lifetime of working ages will provide you health care and a secure retirement. That's really simple. But when he went to the auto workers and said, let's go together and get this done so that you don't have to be responsible for that, they said, no, it sounds too much like socialism. And it didn't happen. So we said, instead, I'm going to take it from you. And that is what started to form what people now call the union card. And they'll try to sell the union label. The fact of the matter is that we are failing the 13 million union members who exist today if we're not organizing in the millions right now, because all it is is a backward slide now. There is there is no distinction between the non-union worker and the union worker who has a union card. And in fact, there are workers in my union who do not have the health care that they should have. They're recently organized and the management is saying it's a non-starter. There are other union members who are in that same position. So we have to understand. And, and then the union members who do have the health care, guess what? The hedge funds are controlling that. They're closing the hospitals. They're cutting back on nurses and janitors and everyone else to make the healthcare system work. They're squeezing everyone from everywhere. You can't get healthcare even if you do have health insurance. So the big issues that we need to take on in this country, that we need to move forward, are only going to happen if we start in the workplace. That's the only way it's going to happen. Because the only person that Jeff Bezos has to answer to right now is Chris Smalls. (laughs) And He doesn't have to listen to any politician, doesn't have to listen to the voters, but he's got to listen to Chris Smalls. And so that's what people have to fundamentally take in, is that if we're going to have a society that works for all of us, we got to take on capital right in our workplace. We got to make sure that we're setting our demands straight, that we're joining together, that we're supporting each other in these issues, because I promise you, you know, the business roundtable, the chamber, they're they're all coordinating on all the tactics that they can use to take more from us every single time. And if we're not struggling forward, we're going to lose that muscle to make it work. And we're also never going to set the demands that Harvey has set out. By the way, it's really important to set those demands, okay? But you've also got to be realistic about the politics of getting there. And the only way we change the politics is by organizing in our workplaces, because then people register to vote. They're demanding those things of their employer. And all of a sudden, the employer doesn't want to be the only one who has to pay. That's the reality. That's that's the special sauce. That's what's gonna get us to an actual economic Bill of Rights. And if we don't do it, then we are not actually Americans. Because this is what it says to be American. And so it's on us. It's on each one of us to make that work. By the way, United Mine Workers, we are one and we are everywhere. Let's make that real again.
3: Employees at the Cumberland Mall's Apple Store in Atlanta made history as the first retail store to file for a union election in the Apple universe. The move is seen as a milestone as employees ramp up efforts to unionize the Tech Goliath's retail workforce while negotiating better pay and benefits. So far, more than 70 percent of the stores, more than 100 eligible employees, have signified yes to unionizing, So that movement is going well, helping lead the charges genius bar technician at the Apple Store in Cumberland, Derek Bowles. Thanks for joining us, Derek.
4: Of course, thank you for having me.
3: So uh, with nearly two thirds, I guess, of the Cumberland Mall's Apple Store employees signing union authorization cards, what happens next?
4: So uh, we filed our petition last Wednesday. Um, Apple will take some time to respond to us. Um, there will be uh, some time, some back and forth, uh, haggling over some details, and then hopefully, sometime in June, uh, we will have an election that we will win uh, to form the first union.
3: It's exciting, but so why? Why do Apple employees at, at this store, and I assume you'd, you'd say uh, at other Apple stores around the country, why do you guys need a union?
4: So there, there are a few things. Um, so right, I, I joined Apple, uh, I've been with Apple for 10 and a half years. And uh, when I joined Apple, we were a $450 billion company somewhere around there. And uh, you know, now we're a $3 trillion company. Uh, we're, we, we've grown fairly massive. Um, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Um, what we have seen is that um, pay in retail uh, has not kept up with cost of living. Uh, so in Atlanta, for example, um, the average apartment will cost you somewhere around 1650 bucks or so. Um, if you want to be able to qualify for that, as we think that a full-time employee should be able to afford a one-bedroom apartment by themselves. If you work full-time, you deserve the dignity of a home to call your own. And to qualify for that, you got to make 28 bucks an hour. Um, it's not cheap living in Atlanta. It used to be championed as a you know a fairly low cost of living city, but prices are going up like they are everywhere else. And we just want to make sure that workers who work full time and who help Apple to create the kind of profits that it does uh, get a fair shake.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Apple stores generally located in my hunches higher income neighborhoods and, and cities in this country and around the world where it costs more. Cost of living is higher. So, how does union unionization uh, help reduce, I guess, is obvious, in, income inequality and and even poverty in those communities.
4: So, if you look historically, uh, right, you go back into the '30s and '40s, and you start seeing uh, as union uh, membership increases, you see a you know probably a, a twenty point drop in the percentage of income going to the top 10% of US income earners. And you see a bigger share going to average workers. Starting in the late 60s, early 70s, union membership starts to get just pummeled and uh, union power is weakened through Supreme Court rulings and legislation. And as that happens, what we see is a massive increase in income inequality again. Uh, we start seeing that the top 10% again starts taking a much, much larger percent of the wages. And so this particularly affects uh, women and people of color because we, uh, on average, you know, the average black man will make 22% less than the average white man in the same job, accounting for the same experience, same region, and same education. Unions are a way to guarantee that everybody gets a fair wage. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. None of that matters. In the union, you are all together. You are all working together. And everybody gets a fair shot.
3: And, and that's it. I'm old enough to remember the heyday of uh, of unions in the 1960s and, and labor Democrats, where uh, Democrats were closely aligned with, with unions.
5: Talk about the significance of this victory.
6: I mean, I don't think we can really understand how big this is. These guys, to their credit, really were this grassroots movement. And they took on Amazon, which is a behemoth, and Jeff Bezos, the second richest person uh, on earth. And they really did it through their connections with the people in the facility. I mean, I think both Chris and Derek have worked at multiple Amazon sites in the last few years. And they know the people that they work with. They understand the company. You know, a lot of times when you see anti-union like messaging, it's always, you know, these outsiders are coming in. They're going to threaten the way that, you know, your work is done. But, you know, these are two individuals and many other organizers who know the nitty-gritty and the details of how Amazon works. I mean, sometimes they would explain things to me and I would just stare at them like with a blank Expression because it was so wonky. So, the fact that not only they understood the company and the work that was being done behind it, they look like the people who work there. I mean, Amazon thrives on like high turnover among its employees. So, you do see a lot of people who are very young. And it's very sort of quintessential New York with some of these captive audience meetings. You know, we've heard leaked audio previously from some of these meetings down south. But in New York, what you're hearing is people pushing back. You know, New York is a union town. But these guys really didn't have much, you know, institutional backing or support. And, you know, it is the ultimate Cinderella story.
5: Um You talked about, to say the least, Amazon being large. It's the second-largest private employer in the country, right right behind Walmart, and, of course, Jeff Bezos, the second wealthiest man on Earth. I wanted to go back to 2018, when then-Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said Amazon believed its workers didn't need a union
4: very good communications with our employees so we don't believe that we need a union to be an intermediary between us and our employees um, but of course at the end of the day it's always the employee's choice and th- and that's how it should be so we're but for sure we would be very naive to believe that we're not going to be criticized I mean that's just part of the Terrain, you have to accept that. One that I tell people is, if you're going to be, if you're going to do anything new or innovative, you have to be willing to be misunderstood.
5: That was 2018. You have to be willing to be misunderstood. I wanted to go back to Christian Smalls. Um, There was an internal memo that was leaked uh, saying uh, that you weren't very smart, and so they would make you the face of the movement, a challenge you took up in a very big way, saying, okay, if I'm the face, I'm the
1: face.
7: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, You know, when that memo came out, that obviously motivated me to continue advocating for workers' rights across the nation. Um, you know, me and Derek, we traveled the country, be protesting in front of uh, Jeff Bezos' mansions and penthouses that we can find on Google, um, from the East coast to the West coast. And we decided to go back home to Staten Island. You know, Um uh, once again, we are, we were invested in this company. Derek is still invested. He's over a six year vet. You know, they don't realize who we are to this company. We, uh, we understand the warehouses more than Jeff Bezos do. So it's funny that he said, you know, uh, you're going to be misunderstood because, We were, you know, we were um, underestimated. We were counted out. People didn't believe in us. People thought that this wasn't going to happen. They never thought they expected that we were going to be here. Um, It's not just Jeff Bezos and his uh, general counsel that didn't, um, you know, want us to get here. It's a lot of other people as well that claim to be on the same side that didn't believe that we would be here. So for us to be here at this moment, you know, it's, it's once again surreal for us.
5: Now, you went down to Bessemer. I remember when we were doing a piece, we heard you were down there. Now, that the Bessemer uh, union um, organizing effort was run by RWDSU, right, the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union. We're still waiting to hear the results now. Um, yep. On the second vote, um, the NLRB said um, that uh, Amazon— uh, uh, had to have us allow for a second election, because they had interfered with the first one. Why didn't you go with, oh, RWDSU um, or the Teamsters? For example, the Teamsters Union praised the workers at Amazon in Staten Island for your victory and ongoing union efforts of Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, tweeting, what these elections show is Amazon workers want a union. The workers in Bessemer and Staten Island don't have to wait for the government or anyone else to tell them they have power, they're taking a stand, and Amazon can't skirt the law indefinitely. The Teamsters are excited to continue this fight against Amazon on the shop floor, at the bargaining table and on the streets. But it is Amazon Labor Union that actually won this battle and is the first against Amazon to win.
7: Right, right. Well, once again, you know, um, these established unions with their resources and the the money that they have, the volunteers that they have, you know, um, I tell everybody they had 28 years (laughs) Amazon's been around for 28 years. You know, we, we done something that was unprecedented because when we went down to Bessemer, we saw some missed opportunities with the campaign the first time. We saw things that um, didn't really uh, fit what Amazon workers represent. Um, you know, and I felt that, you know, to, in order to take down the machine, it has to become, it has to come from within. It has to be the workers organizing themselves. And that's what we did with the ALU. Um, we created something that resonated with the workers. We are the workers. We know the engine out of the company. we live the grievances. we we understand the concerns, we know the language. Um, we look like Amazon employees, especially here in New York. So uh, bringing in the established union, that would have took so much um, you know time away from actually campaigning towards an election because we would now have to educate the union on what Amazon is and how to um, connect with workers. And I think uh, Amazon uses that against us. Already they, even with the ALU, they they claim that we're a third party. If you listen to the captive audiences, they say they are gonna make the decisions for you. They try to separate us, but they couldn't do that because we say we are, we are the, all the union. All the workers together are the union and together we're gonna make these decisions. And that's how um, we were able to be successful against Amazon. Huh.
5: Um, I wanted to ask Josefa Velasquez about what's happening in Bessemer. Um, you've got a very close vote. I think it's 993 no votes, 875 yes votes, more than 400 contested ballots. According to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, um, there will be a hearing within a few weeks to decide if the challenge ballots will be opened and counted. Talk about the difference in UC and strategizing between what happened in um, in Staten Island and what's happening in Bessemer right now.
6: Right, I think it you know it's what Chris said that these are Amazon workers who are unionizing organizing within their ranks as opposed to, you know what's happening down south, where you do have a major labor union that is helping organize. And you know the first time around with the vote in Bessemer, it, it, they got a lot of heat because you're bringing in celebrities, high-profile politicians. You know th- that's not the people who work at Amazon. Those are people who surely you know order stuff from Amazon, but that's not the folks that are inside packing up orders, shipping them out. You know, putting in ten to twelve-hour days. So there was a disconnect there, and they had a second chance at it, and it's still really close. And you know, you can't discount the fact that New York is typically pro-union and union-friendly. But at the same time, you know, to the ALU's immense, you know, positioning, it's organizing within the ranks and understanding how this company works and the intricacies of it. You know, for us at the, you know, user-facing platform, it's three clicks and you have your product. You know, But for the workers themselves, it's all of these different steps, all of this jargon and you understand that, you know, in at least in New York, sometimes to get to the Amazon facility in the northwest corner of Staten Island, you have to take a bus, you have to take a train and then another bus. And it's a two-hour commute each way. So they understand who are the workers behind this organization. And it's really, I think, you know, a lot of the times you get the word grassroots thrown around. But this is a case where it's truly grassroots, where you have people who understand how Amazon work? I mean, Derek still works inside of the facility and saw the union busting going on firsthand. Chris has worked as a supervisor in Amazon previously. He's trained people, so they know exactly who the workers are and their grievances and what how the union can help make things better.
5: So, Derek, what are your plans now? Um, ALU uh, had has won this enormous victory. What are your demands?
8: Um, well, um, you know, just having, um, better benefits, um, better pay, um, you know, like sick time, um, those, those are the basic things. Um, also job security, you know, you know, Amazon has 150% turnover ratio at JFK alone. Um, so people that come and commute from, um, from all these different boroughs, you know, their, their jobs should be secured. You know, it shouldn't take them three hours to get to work. And then when they get there, they could possibly be fired. Um, you know, the possibilities of that are very high. Um, so, you know, we, we have to we have to make that change. And um, also recruiting um, more more workers to get involved with the union, um, you know, becoming shop stewardess. So we want to have shop stewardess in uh, different departments um, so that you know have workers representing other workers and that, you know, we can create an, an environment where um, our demands, you know, and um, the workers needs um, are appreciated. So if you have these workers on the inside being more involved with the union, then now you create a powerful force, you know, that ultimately can't really be stopped. And uh, Amazon has to abide by these, uh, these rules.
5: And Josefa, if you can talk about the comparison of what's happening with Amazon now and with Starbucks, uh, what we're seeing all over the country right now.
6: Right. And I think it all goes back to sort of the early days of the pandemic where everyone was lauding essential workers, people who still had to work while, you know, some of us had the luxury to work from home. And these, you know, 7 p.m. clap outs that we had, all these people had to work through the pandemic. And suddenly from one day to the next, we sort of just forgot about it and it became in the back of our minds. So now you have this moment where people were more conscious of the working class, the people who keep us fed, the people who, you know, deliver our coffee, deliver our packages. And so I think it created this moment really in history where people started recognizing the working class more so than before, especially when it comes to like tech and big companies, where now you're seeing Amazon and Starbucks having these major profit margins while their workers, you know, are struggling to pay rent to keep themselves fed and are getting sick and dying from this virus. So it created this moment where everyone was looking around and saying, you know, we have an immense amount of power because people are no longer putting up with some of the working situations they have. They have other alternatives. And that at the end of the day, you know, dying over a Starbucks is not worth it. So let's create something different. Let's organize. You now there's power in numbers. And I think there's two very clear things happening here where it's these worker-led movements and also a very big generational shift into the sort of feelings towards unions. Gen Z and millennials don't have the same antipathy that perhaps, you know, Gen Xers and baby boomers have towards unions. Like, these are unicorn-type jobs where if you're able to grab a union job, great. These are very rare. So, you know, it's this idea of organizing and this behind-the-scenes look through social media of, like, how how my coffee gets made in the morning and all the steps behind it. And same thing with Amazon. It's how do I, how does my package actually get from point A to point B that I think caused this moment of revelation for everyone that, you know, it's not okay how people are treated.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by a new limited podcast series will be wild. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, but you can't quite place it, it's from the tweet that effectively launched the insurrection on January 6th at Trump's urging. Promoting the rally he had tweeted, "Be there, We'll be wild And now, From the critically acclaimed podcast studios Pineapple Street and Wondery comes a new documentary series that shines a light on the human stories left out of the January 6th headlines and goes deep into the lives of people who took part in that day, the people who saw it coming, and the people who fear that the insurrection is just the beginning. If you missed it, there should already be a sample of the show in your Best of the Left feed for you to check out. The sample tells the beginning of the story about the son who turned his father into the FBI. So this clearly isn't the standard headlines version of the assault on American democracy that you're used to. Will Be wild is a close-up look at the four-year effort to bring autocracy to America and what the insurrection could mean for the future of democracy. Because a failed and unpunished coup, they say, is just a dress rehearsal. Follow Will Be Wild wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.
9: Over 140,000 people went on strike last year for concerns including, please pay us more, and please give us healthcare, and hey, could we not die on the job? One of the most notable strikes started in October 2021. 10,000 United Auto Workers, employees for John Deere in Iowa, went on strike, citing stagnating wages despite increasing profits. Workers only received a 5% pay increase, while the CEO received a 160% pay raise. The strike continued after John Deere made some concessions, increasing the pay raise to 10%. But this new contract allowed a loophole for them to keep hiring supplemental workers who would earn way less than workers doing the same job, which seems like a clever way to start to phase out your normal employees for supplemental workers whom you get to pay less for literally no good reason while trying to pit your employees against each other. Nice work there. Dick's running John Deere. Unsurprisingly, United Auto Workers voted to remain on strike while this two-tier pay system continues to exist. John Deere responded to the strike by getting an injunction to limit the number of picketers outside the factory to four at a time and to ban burn barrels that were keeping strikers warm at night, using the power of the freezing cold to fight against strikers. You know, Mr. Freeze stuff, but without the relatable backstory about loving his wife. They also forced salaried workers to become scabs and take over the factory floor work, despite these salaried workers being woefully untrained and unprepared to, you know, work in a factory. Almost immediately after John Deere forced their workers to go on the factory floor, someone crashed a tractor into an electrical box. Oops! I guess the unskilled, replaceable work of operating 10,000-pound machines requires some, um, skill. (laughs) While this incident is admittedly pretty funny, what's not funny is that John Deere cares so little about its salaried employees that they're willing to risk the lives of office workers by thrusting them into an environment they haven't trained for. And they care so little about their factory workers that in all the years they've been running the company, they haven't bothered to learn how difficult their job is. Feels like the embodiment of Michael Scott. Like there has to be an office episode about this. Anyway, the John Deere strike ended only after the company relented and gave workers a 10% pay raise. But this was from the only strike that struck even before Striketober began. In Strike-tember, Nabisco employees went on strike for an attempt by the company to implement a similar two-tier wage system. The strike only ended when the union was able to demand increased wages and killed said payment system. Then there's the Kellogg's strike in Omaha, in which workers, also like the John Deere strikers, are against a two-tier system where Kellogg's is able to pay those they deem transitional employees less for the same amount of work as legacy employees. Kellogg's was also trying to to increase the number of employees they get to classify as transitional employees. So, you know trying to pay more employees less. The strike was also over poor working conditions, where they are forced to work 12 to 16-hour days, given mandatory overtime, and were punished for taking sick days. If there's one thing we've learned during the pandemic, it's that forcing people to work when they're sick is smart and good, and smart again and good again. The strike ended after the union voted to accept a new work contract that offered higher wages and more benefits. Speaking of gross food we love, in October, McDonald's workers walked off the job in 12 different cities over the company inadequately protecting workers from sexual, verbal, and physical harassment in the workplace. Also, 60,000 members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees threatened a strike citing grueling working conditions over 12-hour workdays with little to no breaks and low pay. IATSE president Matthew Loeb said, Our people have basic human needs like time for meal breaks, adequate sleep, and a weekend. For those at the bottom of the pay scale, they deserve nothing less than a living wage. What Sleep! meal breaks what's next not having your every move monitored while having to skip bathroom breaks to keep your job also known as being an Amazon employee how incredibly shocking that while we were writing this episode Amazon experienced a bunch of walkouts from employees demanding a higher wage and longer breaks did I say we wrote this episode no 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 this is spontaneous it's 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 rebel radio hard hairy etc and so forth anywho in related news that I'm spontaneously mentioning 30,000 Kaiser Permanente employees threatened to strike in November, also citing a two-tiered system in which newer hires would be given up to a 39% pay cut for the same work as other employees, despite the company making $10 billion during the pandemic and its CEO getting a $35 million retirement package. Hey. Do you notice a trend in these strikes? One of their primary complaints has been unequal pay for newer hires, which creates a system of arbitrary inequity among the workforce. The workers striking may not even be the ones getting the pay cut, but still go on strike in solidarity. Unions recognize that when companies do this, they splinter workers into smaller groups, causing rifts and making it harder to organize. In this case, it was more like Kaiser Perman, not Permanente, not permanent. Kaiser permanent, not permanent because the company caved is the point agreeing to do away with the two tier payment system and increasing wages Shane Burley, the communications organizer of the Oregon Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals said I'm really happy we have an agreement it was a really long fight, it only happened because we basically put forth the largest healthcare strike in American history in fact, around half of the 140,000 people who went on strike in 2021 were healthcare workers, or you know, the here on the front line of the pandemic that we made cute Funko Pops out of and some weird political cartoons imagining them getting killed in a war before forgetting to do anything materially useful for them at all or like even viewing them as people with lives who were just doing a job that wasn't supposed to have casualties. Like imagine if a serial killer was slaughtering a bunch of accountants and instead of doing anything we just called them brave soldiers and thanked them for their sacrifice. That would be weird and up. And so in 2021, nurses went on strike for 10 months in Massachusetts at St. Vincent Hospital. The hospital is owned by Tenet, a very serious action-adventure through time and space that I have not gotten around to seeing yet, and a for-profit healthcare company that owns 60 hospitals in the U.S. and is valued at over $8 billion. The nurses' union had been negotiating with hospital management for two years for a better contract, asking for pay increases and safer working conditions, but mainly for the hospital to address its staffing issues. More specifically, that there was not enough staff per patient. The strikers called out a policy of the hospital to send nurses home during a shift if the management thought they were not needed, a practice called flexing. But despite how it sounds, this was done out of cost-cutting and not overstaffing, meaning that the remaining nurses on duty became swamped. And amazingly, this happened even during the pandemic.
10: To maximize profits, American hospitals have been intentionally understaffing nurses for decades, long before the pandemic. What the hospital industry doesn't want you to know is that there's never been more licensed nurses in America. Hospitals just aren't hiring
9: them. After the 300-day strike of 700 workers, the nurses' union won. They not only beat the hospital management's attempt to replace them with strike breakers, they also got their main demands over staffing issues, 2% pay raises, better health care since nurses need healthcare too, and provisions for nurses who are assaulted on the job, which is sadly a thing that happens a lot. This is also an improvement for patients. Research has shown, unsurprisingly, that patient outcomes improve when they get more individual time with nurses. But despite what seems like a win for both the nurses and the patients, amazingly, there was an attempt to kill the nurses' union following their victory. The National Right to Work Defense Fund, an anti-union organization, has given money to aid in a union decertification effort led by a strike-breaking nurse who quite ironically said the union was dividing workers. Some fun facts about the National Right to Work Defense Fund. It was established in 1968 and tries to advance right-to-work laws that prohibit unions from having agreements with management that all employees must pay dues. Also... It was started by a white supremacist because this is America, you see. And so the anti-union right to work movement started with the Christian American Association led by Republican businessman Vance Muse. Just to give you an idea of who Vance Muse was, his own son described him as a white supremacist, an anti-Semite and a communist baiter, a man who beat on labor unions, not on behalf of working people, as he said, but because he was paid to do so. Vance Muse also fought women's suffrage, tried to bring back child labor, and published anti-Semitic and anti-Black propaganda. In other words, the founder of the right to work is a man perpetually on the wrong side of history who was probably paid to do it. And this is the same movement alive and kicking today, and trying to kill unions even after successful strikes that improve conditions for workers and patients. Luckily, the St. Vincent's Nurses Union voted to keep their union, so... That's good. In fact, the pushback against anti-union propaganda and toxic work culture in general seems to be growing. Posts from the anti-work subreddit have reached immense popularity and media pearl clutching. The anti-work subreddit has 1.8 million members since starting out as a niche community for work abolition, ending forced labor through capitalism. They cite books like The Abolition of Work by Bob Black. But for most of the users, it's a place to vent about their struggles and mistreatment at work, as well as a place for cathartic, if not sometimes fake, posts about texts they send their bosses quitting jobs that treat them poorly. It rose to prominence during the pandemic alongside the great resignation of people quitting in record numbers. And again, whether or not these posts of people telling off their workplaces are real or not, this subreddit really rose to fame as some hardcore comeuppance porn. Their popularity reveals how many people fantasize about quitting their job after a round of abuse from their boss. And most importantly, people realizing they have the chance to actually demand better treatment and have leverage, as in realizing the value of their labor and the fact that they aren't as replaceable as they've been told.
11: the industrial work that made up the backbone of the system was miserable. It's hard, it's grinding, it's exhausting, it breaks your body. So there's essentially a deal struck between bosses and employees. The work probably sucks, but we're going to pay you all right. And you're going to have a weekend and you're going to probably be able to buy a house. And this idea that you will find pleasure in your work was relegated to the sidelines. It was there for sort of critics of the system, like English artisan William Morris, who was both a maker of beautiful Mm prints and also a radical socialist who was writing critiques of the system. He argued that people should get pleasure in the work itself, as well as the fruits of their labor, that that would actually be a more equal and a more just and less miserable society. We
10: don't get that. We get a place to live, the ability to support a family, an occasional vacation, a weekend. Those basics were something that workers were willing to pay for with eight-hour, five-day work weeks. Right. And
11: that was not that historically long a period of time that that ruled. But it is this thing that still has a really solid hold over our imaginations because it gave us some expectation that we would be fairly remunerated for our work. The 1970s brings us a crisis of profits essentially where workers are getting an increasing piece of the pie and suddenly the pie stops growing. And this has all sorts of reasons everything from an oil crisis to political changes but employers start outsourcing the factory jobs. We no longer want to pay people an ever growing slice of the pie something replaces those jobs. Teachers, care workers, retail workers, restaurant workers. And that work already existed and already had a different set of expectations for emotional labor and things like that. And also, you know, the cool knowledge jobs where you get to sit around talking on the radio about the book that you wrote, uh, which are a minuscule part of the economy, really. Those jobs, too, expanding. And those two come with a different expectation that you will like it, you should be grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons that I think it's interesting to talk about this history is just to remind people that it's not always been this way. And it's still not this way for every worker. You know, I went to Indiana, to go report on the carrier factory closing after, you know, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders had made a big deal out of it on the campaign trail in 2016. And I was talking to workers and I was like, what are you going to miss about the job? And they all looked at me like I had three heads, <laughs> you know, the paycheck. Maybe they were going to miss their buddies and the, the union and going to the bar after work for a round of beers before they go home. But like nobody was like, oh, I'm really going to miss standing at the machine for 12 mm-hmm. hours a day
10: no, I'm going to miss $26 an hour plus overtime is what I'm going to miss. They had been roped in by the Fordist Compromise, which receded in the 70s. And then we got neoliberalism or post-Fordism, or as you say, late capitalism, a world of fewer social services, fewer worker protections, jobs going offshore, and workers begging for them to stay. You quote Joshua Clover in his book saying, labor is locked into the position of affirming its own exploitation under the guise of survival. And you say that Mm -hmm. was a short step to the labor of love. Explain that. Yeah. So one of the things that's been fascinating about the strikes this year is that
11: we've seen a lot of strikes in manufacturing, which is a place we haven't seen that many of them in recent years because workers have been too busy trying to keep those plants open. Again, I revisit the carrier plant, um, the Lordstown GM plant in Ohio, where factories are closing down and the workers are desperately trying to save them. The striking thing about the carrier plant actually was sort of on either side of it. There's an Amazon warehouse and a Target warehouse. You look around and you know what the jobs that you're going to get are. When the factory closes, you're going to be making $15 an hour if you're lucky, which doesn't pay the mortgage on the house you bought with $26 an hour. And so you go from being able to strike, shut down production, make demands for more, like the workers at John Deere did this summer, to begging your employer not to shut the factory down entirely and move it to Mexico, to Bangladesh, to Vietnam, to China. So that creates a very different relationship to the job and to the employer. And that connects really easily to this idea that was already proliferating in other forms of work that we love our jobs, that we're grateful for our jobs,
10: that our jobs give us meaning and fulfillment and pride. So, this idea of love roll back again to the 70s. You quote Margaret Thatcher saying, Who's society? There's no such thing. There are individual men and women, and there are families. And the implication is work is an extension of family, so you should love it and be prepared to sacrifice for it. Yeah,
11: one of the things that was fascinating when I was reporting my book was I expected to hear a lot of family talk in caring workplaces, in hospitals, in healthcare, in teaching, maybe in arts institutions. I didn't expect to hear it so much where I did, which was actually the video games industry. Games workers were always hearing it. Literally, one company that I reported on in the book refers to itself on its website as a fampony, (laughs) right? And I know about this company because it fired one of its workers for organizing. But, you know, I, I was speaking to the games workers. And Kevin Aguazza, who's the the person that I base my video games workers chapter on, he was joking about, you know, you move halfway across the country to take a new job at the games company. And then there are these mass layoffs every year. And so they've laid you off six months after they've told you that you've joined the family. And it's like your family doesn't have mass layoffs once a year, you know, where you evaluate like Aunt Susan and decide like, oh, nope she's out now. No more part of the family. Um, firing your family is very, very difficult. Firing your workers is very, very easy. One of the things that happens when you have this incredible pressure for everything to sort of be on your individual back is that it becomes all about your individual achievement, your individual relationships with your job, your individual sort of utility maximizing, your ability to keep an eye out for the next good job and jump as soon as it comes along. That kind of pressure, among other things, it really militates against having these conversations with your coworkers, of realizing that actually we're all in the same boat here. So it disrupts collective action. Right. Exactly. It tells you that the solution, if you don't love your job, is to go find a job you do love rather than to try to make your job better. And that is, I think, the most sort of useful thing that the, the labor of love story does
10: for employers writ large. It tells us that it's all on us. And with the decline of, of the factory job, of the industrial job, with a decent mm-hmm. wage, you've got this reliance on love and the jobs that are now proliferating are care jobs, health jobs mm-hmm. and so on and they in particular can engender burnout
11: yeah the the thing about burnout which has become a sort of buzzword these days is that the term and the condition originally come out of research on caring workers, on doctors and nurses, that doctors and nurses who were burned out were losing that motivation of caring about their work, that they just couldn't bring themselves to care anymore. But what is burnout to the factory worker who maybe never really cared that much about the drill that you lift however many times an hour to do your part on the assembly line. It's very hard to feel like intrinsically motivated about that, even though you might feel pride in the car that you help build and in the money that you bring home. Burnout
10: essentially becomes a problem of the labor of love. I remember talking to a therapist who talked about something that was in the 60s called stewardess syndrome, where Mm -mm. uh, you had to smile even when sleazy business people were touching you or pulling at your skirt, and you had to really convey a love for your job and a kind of happy subservience, and that Mm -hmm. the emotional toll it took was devastating.
11: Right. And this is very interesting because actually the research that sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild did that led her to come up with a concept of emotional labor was on flight attendants, And ah. it was on that very particular thing that you're talking about, that work of suppressing how you really feel when like the creepy guy in first class puts his hand on your butt to keep smiling and be like, can I get you a scotch, sir, even though I want to murder you? That's work. I was rereading this wonderful article from, again, early on in the pandemic at Tribune magazine by Polly Smythe, and she was a retail worker. And the piece was called How COVID Turned Cashiers into Carers. And she told this haunting story of handing a customer his change through the little hole in the plexiglass that was supposed to prevent them from breathing on each other. And this customer reached out and took her hand and just held on to it. And she writes, after about 10 seconds, he let go, looked down at the floor and said, I'm very sorry. The thing is, I live alone. Every customer at the checkout counter, you have to smile at and all of that. But then how much harder is that when you're realizing that this customer hasn't like touched a human in weeks? Mm -hmm. That story just, it haunts me because it's such a perfect example of, of how much harder these jobs got in maybe ways that we didn't even think about. Does work ever love you back? I mean, work is just not a thing that can love you. And even if you have a great boss, and look, I've had great bosses, that doesn't take away from the pressures that every employer will face. And the fact that at the end of the day, they sometimes have to make a choice that isn't the best for me because it's the best for the business. Mm -hmm. And that is just a fundamental thing that isn't solvable necessarily by your boss being nicer. It's solvable by, you know, changing these relationships. Between the worker and the work. Right. And that's a big, broad social relationship that gets changed at the top by economic systems and public policy. There is a limited amount of life hacks that can solve this problem. And the shifting from one job to the next can absolutely change your life for the better. But it's also still going to be a job.
2: We had this infusion of relief during COVID and people had an opportunity actually to see what that could look like that, that you said, you called it emergency, but actually what we want to talk about here is that this is not emergency status. This should be the status quo. Um, And so I think about democracy and I, I know I have learned so much about democracy by being a union leader and being a union member. And the reality is that anywhere that democracy exists, if people don't participate, democracy dies, and so we have to make sure that people are able to participate. Right before COVID, we had uh, we had a strike wave. Remember, teachers, grocery workers. We had walkouts at Google. We had we had the most strikes in 2018 that we had had in decades, and um, so people were starting to express the fact that our country has become something that is not. Uh, is not reflective of the promise that we've all been given through our Constitution and what was laid out uh, by uh, our founding fathers and by uh, everyone who participated in making this great uh, American experience. But um, we have a lot more to do to make it work for us. And so people are out there protesting right where they are in their workplaces. And that is a place where democracy exists too. See, capital unchecked, has led us to a place where fewer and fewer people are participating. I think about the 2016 election when I was out there talking with workers, and there were workers who said, I don't have time to go to the polls. I'm working two and three jobs. So think about that. The more that people have security, the more that people can can take care of their families, the more likely that they are to participate. Part of what capital has done is try to make it very, very difficult, try to make the bar very, very high. For anyone to be able to participate and try to make people believe that they don't call the shots, that they can't make a difference with their vote, that they can't make a difference by getting engaged. And as collective bargaining has been on the decline with the decline of union membership, we have no concept that the individual worker can actually stand up and meet the boss in the eye when they're standing with the rest of their coworkers. We have no concept of the fact that we can actually come together and solve problems through collective bargaining. There's been a complete breakdown of democracy. Then you have the pandemic on top of that. And now workers have a shared experience and they see we've been stretched so far across the board in every single industry. We're more productive than ever. What does that mean? It means we're working longer hours and we're working with fewer people to do the same job. Where has all of that productivity gone? It's gone into the hands of Wall Street. It's gone into the pockets of the billionaires. And that continued to happen throughout the pandemic, with the exception of the airline industry, where we're 80 percent unionized and where we made management have to negotiate with us before we went through the political process. So I always say start in the workplace and the politics will follow. What we got was a workers first relief program of payroll support. And we had to do this because in this country without health care provided, if you don't have a paycheck, you also don't have health care. And so our proposal was keep everyone where they are, pass that money directly through it to the workers, where they continue to pay their taxes, which lifts up the local communities. Uh, they continue to pay into Social Security and and hold up our social programs into um, uh, our programs like unemployment with so many people out on the unemployment line. And you keep people in place and ready to meet the demand when the crisis is over. Um, but there's another really important thing that we did. We capped stock buybacks and executive compensation, and they acted differently. They fought against us, but they had to agree because without us, they were not going to get the relief and the airline industry was going to collapse altogether. And so we put our demands out there. They had to meet them and they act differently when they know that they can't enrich themselves. They get to the business of running the business. So this is just one small example of what's possible. And workers saw the example of what's possible during COVID, but they also saw That not only have we been squeezed, we have been treated as disposable because we were sent into the workplace as essential workers, and it was only about that cost item. Essential workers, that that title that capital has been so used to giving people to make them feel pride in what they're doing and have people feel like they'd be willing to accept anything just for a little praise. The fact of the matter is, when people die... When they see their coworkers dying, when they see them in unsafe conditions, that changes. So here we are in this moment where workers can are actually waking up to the idea that maybe there's another answer. Maybe there's another way to go about this. And Chris Smalls, man, I can't give him enough credit and the people who stood with him. Let's just talk about that win in New York for just a minute. You know, he was a worker who wanted to move up in the, account, in the company, who was working hard actually at Amazon, wanted to take pride in where he was. And when his company abused him so badly, not only pushing them into unsafe conditions, but when he stood up and said something about it to try to make it a better workplace, they fired him instead of listening to him. And then they targeted him. And this has been what capital has done forever. They think they have all the control because they have all the money. But he kept at it. And organized and did something that other people don't think is possible because they can't even believe that workers can wake up to the power that we have right now. And that is the moment that we're in. So I don't think this is about what's possible. Okay. A lot of people are saying this shows what's possible. Bullshit. Okay. Workers have this power right now. It exists right now. All we have to do is wake up to it and then join together and look at, look at the, worker-led movement that was led in that warehouse. It was diverse. (laughs) It engaged everyone. It did all the right things in organizing without using the organizing terms or having someone else tell them what to do. They had fun together because they were taking on the boss. They were taking on what some people would say is the most power. But the truth is that the people in charge right now, the billionaires, they don't have power. They don't. They have money and they have control. Workers have power because nothing moves without us.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with The Real News speaking with airline union organizers about class war and union-busting tactics. ABC News spoke with an Apple employee organizing the first Apple Store union in Atlanta, Georgia. Democracy Now! talked with Chris Smalls and others about the successful unionization campaign at an Amazon warehouse. Some more news ran down a murderer's row of recent labor abuses by major companies. On the Media discussed the propaganda of labor of love and the anti-worker rhetoric of love it or leave it. And The Real News, speaking further with the airline industry union organizer, discussed the fundamental connection between democracy and the workplace. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from On the Media looking at the history of May Day, International Workers' Day, which is celebrated nearly everywhere but in the U.S. where it was created. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I have some more thoughts about issues sort of swirling around the concept of labor, but first some activism for you. As the surge in labor organizing continues, members of Congress are raising concerns that the National Labor Relations Board may not be able to meet the demand. The NLRB plays an essential role for labor, overseeing private sector union elections and refereeing disputes between labor groups and employers. However, eight years of stagnant funding and losing roughly 30% of its staff since 2010 has left the department weak. Members of the House and Senate are calling for a $94 million increase in the NLRB budget for the next fiscal year, saying the board has been, quote, «starved to death for a decade». But, like everything, it will be an uphill battle, so call your members of Congress today and tell them you support workers' rights to organize and that you demand the increase in funding to revitalize the National Labor Relations Board. Check the show notes for the full story on this issue and be sure to share it and this call to action with others. Now, I want to talk a little bit today about how work is part of life, not something to be balanced Against life, so the show today got me thinking about the human connections, particularly during COVID lockdown, that were being forged through places of work. Part, you know, sometimes between the employees and the customers. You know, we heard the story of the man who lived alone and reached out and uh, held a cashier's hand, and then explained, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but I I live alone, and uh, that got me thinking because. Very recently, I was talking with the cafe owner who we visited during our first months of lockdown. And the cafe owner was telling us about how they became one of the only places in the neighborhood that was open where a a person could go other than the grocery store and get something to eat, get something to drink, but also have some sort of human connection. And then I think particularly because this cafe is owned and operated by the owners, that's who people were talking to. You know, When they would come in, it is the owner who they would see. They had uh, you know, been basically been forced to hopefully temporarily lay off their entire staff. And th- this sort of mom and pop operation went on. Uh, operating with just the two of them doing all of the baking, all of the ordering, all the supplying, everything and then managing the register and and you know making all the food. So, you know, we were talking much more recently and she was sort of reminiscing about the stories from that time and how bizarre and hectic it was. And she talked about several people, multiple people, uh, but primarily men who who would come in during those early days of lockdown crying. And, you know, she didn't go into a lot of detail, but, you know, it was that total disconnection from society. Uh, some had been uh, you know, losing their work. Uh, some were going through a divorce. And then the, the isolation just became, you know, really too much for them. And she said that, for some for you know a small number suicide was a very serious concern for these people and <laughs> the way she tells the story she described that you know they she she could see what was going on with them and instead of just fulfilling their order and wishing them well and sending them on their way she said you know what no come on you're you're coming with me and she took them to the back of the cafe where lots of boxes were sort of stacked up she said sit here You're going to be okay. Be quiet. (laughs) Other people can't know that you're here, particularly if the police come by. It could be a very serious problem if you are here, but I'm not letting you leave right now. And she ended up forming genuine bonds with these people. They would come to the cafe and she would let them hang out as long as they needed. She would talk with them. She would exchange phone numbers and be in touch after hours as well. And, you know, through this, she became undoubtedly a sort of, you know, de facto friend and mother to many throughout the community. And this obviously is just one of countless stories along these lines. There was a a story published in the New York Times under the Modern Love column titled, He Delivered For Me How My UPS Man Went From Annoyance to Emotional Lifeline. And, you know, it turned out that the UPS man had begun not just having a chat with the author of the piece, but had been chatting with people all throughout his route during lockdown to sort of check on people, make sure they were doing okay, and, and just, you know, give them someone to talk to. And COVID is by no means unique in in terms of generating these types of stories. In the most recent bonus episode that we did for members, we talked in more depth than I'll have time for today about Rebecca Solnit's book, Paradise Built in Hell. And here's just a quick excerpt from it. She is describing the aftermath of the 1906 Earthquake and Fire in San Francisco, and she writes, Mrs. Anna Amelia Holzhauser woke up on the floor of her bedroom on Sacramento Street, where the earthquake had thrown her. The house in western San Francisco was slightly damaged, Her downtown place of business—she was a beautician and masseuse—was a total wreck, and so she salvaged what she could and moved on with a friend, Mr. Paulson. Like thousands of others, they ended up trudging with their bundles to Golden Gate Park, the thousand-acre park that runs all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. There, they spread out a quilt and lay down, not to sleep, but to shiver with cold from fog and mist and watch the flames of the burning city, whose blaze shone far above the trees." On their third day in the park, she stitched together blankets, carpets, and sheets to make a tent that sheltered 20 people, including 13 children, and Holzhauser started a tiny soup kitchen with one tin can to drink from and one pie plate to eat from. All over the city, stoves were hauled out of damaged buildings, fire was forbidden indoors since many standing homes had gas leaks or damaged flues or chimneys, or primitive stoves were built out of rubble and people commenced to cook for each other, for strangers, for anyone in need. Her generosity was typical, even if her initiative was exceptional. Pulsehauser got funds to buy eating utensils across the bay in Oakland. The kitchen began to grow, and she was soon feeding two to three hundred people a day. Not a victim of the disaster, but a victor over it, and the hostess of a popular social center, her brother's and sister's keeper. And so essential workers, as we have been calling them, or simply those who do the work that is essential, whether they are getting paid for it or not, is a constant in times of disaster that is always there. Those people are always there doing that work. And the percentage of people doing that work is, I think, much higher than we generally think of. And for many, they are the links to not just society, but sort of humanity, and so the, the whole work-life balance thing, to get back to this, is bullshit. Not because life is made for working and there should be no disconnect between working for a corporation and the rest of your life, but because the work that you do should be made to fit into a life. And there shouldn't be thought of the separation. Because when you begin to think of that separation, you start to think that, well, the time spent working – It's okay if that's mind-numbing, soul-crushing, and miserable, because I have my real life over here. It shouldn't be that way. No one should be expected to give over 40 hours or more of their lives each week to do something that is not worthy of being called life and needs to be relegated to something else called work. You know, we heard today about different types of jobs and, and which we might think of as being labors of love. And sure, you know, you may not hear someone working on a factory line talk about loving their work, but you may very well hear them say that they love their job and it is very likely to be because of their coworkers that they will say that. However, when I conjure an image of a person with a factory job saying something like that, I don't think of someone working in a factory today. Maybe they're there. Maybe they feel that way. But what I think of, and the person who I think is more likely to say something like this, is an old-timer who worked at the same plant for 30 years alongside a group of coworkers who all did the same. And this, I think, is why the story we heard from the Amazon warehouse employee who had struggled to organize her coworkers because she hardly ever saw the same people twice was so horrifying Yes, it's horrifying because it's an anti-union organizing tactic to keep workers busy and monitored at all times. And yes, Amazon likely did all of that on purpose for anti-union reasons. But what is, I think, incidental to that and and likely something Amazon didn't intend to do and probably never even thought about is that those anti-union policies also strip the humanity ...from the experience of that work. Working in a warehouse doesn't have to be miserable by definition. It could be filled with camaraderie and friendship and joy... ...that infuses the relatively unpleasant work with meaning. I mean, my first job was at a pizza restaurant... ...and I can't think of more than maybe one or two tasks I regularly did at that job... ...that I would consider enjoyable. But many of my friends from school worked there... ...and I made many other friends on the job... And so when I think back on that work, I think of it as having been thoroughly enjoyable overall because I'm not actually remembering the work. I'm remembering the humanity that was associated with that work. So as much respect and admiration as I have for the union organizers who are fighting for better pay, benefits, and working conditions, I can't help but feel like an opportunity is being missed to sketch out that the definition of better working conditions needs to go beyond doing what is good for the individual employee in terms of, you know, flexible bathroom breaks and the like. But what we need is to create environments that are conducive to human needs, which includes camaraderie, friendship, socializing, and solidarity. Those things that money can never replace and are fundamental to making work an integral part of a well-lived and authentic human life, not just something to be endured while our real life is waiting for us at home. As always, I would love to hear your comments on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofaleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, Activism, segments, graphic designing, webmastering and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com/support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. Speaking of building camaraderie and solidarity, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, videos, and books. That's where I caught wind of a paradise built in hell. Links to join are in the show notes.